podcast. My name is David Litwin, and I am honored and excited that you chose to spend some time with me today. On these podcasts, Rethinker, we're going to really think or go deeper into Scripture, God's biblical tenets, uh, his statutes, his parables, and other aspects of our faith to really cultivate a broader and richer, stand, a richer understanding of who God is. In this case, we're going to uh, look at a couple of terms, and we're not going to look at them based on some updated, extra-biblical idea. We're actually going to go back to their Hebrew roots. Today, we're going to look deeper into the roots of the terms good and evil. Now, from pulpits across America on Sunday mornings, mankind is often neatly sliced and separated into two categories, the good, us, and the evil, them. If you're lucky, you might get a, parable, you might get a story about the sheep and the goats or the wheat and the tares. But if we take good and evil back to its original Hebrew meanings, we actually discover that our battle is not solely against the moral actions of people or those made in God's image. Instead, it's against the outcomes of those that harm God's image. I'm going to say that again. Again, it is the, about the outcomes of the harm made of those in God's image. Let's look at the, probably the most common passage in Scripture that uses the words good and evil. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Genesis 2.17 All right, now let's go deeper. The English term good used in this verse is the Hebrew word tob. Now, tob has a rich well of over 40 classifications, including excellent, rich, valuable, and estimate, comparatively better, prosperity, and welfare. Tob speaks of that which is beneficial, prosperous, and valuable. Now, the church might claim, ah, doing moral good produces such blessings. And actually, certain church trains base their entire ministry on it. But the second Hebrew term pulls back even deeper layers. The term evil is the Hebrew word ra, and that definition is also far denser than just wickedness or immorality. Here are a few of its decorative def- definitions. Ra, malignant, giving pain, misery, injurious, distress, calamity, or comparatively worse. So if we really want to combine these two Hebrew classifications, we could gain further insight into this comparison. Original sin or eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, opened man's eyes to, A, the knowledge of the excellent and the distressful, the knowledge of the rich and the injurious, and the knowledge of the valuable and the miserable. Okay, wait, what? Think about this for a second. Based on these Hebrew classifications, we could suppose that if after the fall, man could choose between what was excellent and rich, or what was injurious, injurious, malignant, or painful, he'd choose to go with the, re- the excellent and reject the injurious. But this was not the case. Genesis 6.5 tells us that the sum total of humanity, minus Noah and his family, thought of evil, which is the exact same word, raw, continually. So moral definitions aside, mankind, given the choice between choosing the rich and the distressful, deliberately chose injurious and miserable actions? Okay, how can that be? Let's go back to man's beginning for just a moment. We know that God created man in his own image. We learned that in in the importance of that in our third podcast. But he kept man out of his plane of existence. God transcends time. But man was plunged plunged into a linearly formatted world. Man may independently act out of his own will, but he is bound by the minutes, seconds, hours, and days that follow any willful action, which means he is helpless to predict and often even control the consequences of his actions. After the fall, man was thrust into a world of endless possibility and endlessly uncertain outcomes. 
Through this grid, we can look at the tree again and extract an even deeper meaning. We could say that man in the garden rejected wisdom and instead chose the knowledge of actions that produce excellent, rich, or valuable outcomes and actions that produce injurious, miserable, or distressful outcomes. This changes things dramatically. After the fall, man could choose actions which might have been rich or rewarding or actions that were malignant and injurious, but he couldn't know because he was kept out of God's transcendent timetable. As Newton asserts through the law of motion, outcome is only determined after an event has occurred. But any actions producing injurious outcomes may take months, years, or even decades to occur. Ask the smoker who puffed his first cigarette at 17 and is now forced to speak through a goiter at the age of 52. Or the girl who had a few sexual partners in her early teens and just found out it led to cervical cancer she now has at 25. Or the woman who lost the battle, or the man, let's say, who lost the battle with gluttony as an early adolescent and is now losing the battle to diabetes-induced heart disease at 35. Since man is forced to operate linearly, the relationship between first action and final outcome would have been totally foreign to post-fall humanity. So what metrics, metrics would have governed man's actions after the fall? We can guess, and we often live now, that man would have chosen whatever brought him the most pleasure. Man would not have intentionally chosen the malignant over the valuable. He would have purposely selected whatever produced pleasure in the immediate moment versus whatever negated, neutralized, or deferred pleasure. Think about it. Isn't that how many of us operate today? But what the church or even Dante calls sins are at least at the beginning highly pleasurable. Promiscuous sex, for a number of reasons, is one of the body's most top euphoric stimulants. Drugs produce instant physiological highs. Gluttony ignites the taste buds and creates amazing chemical releases in the brain. A winning moment in gambling not only floods the player with a financial reward, it also floods his brain with dopamine, the brain's neurotransmitter that is responsible for mood and excitement and euphoria. Where the church labels these and other sinful actions as evil, Science is now unlocking how wired our bodies are to actually relishing these experiences. So what does the church do? Well, the church usually tends to run from or downplay the pleasurable side of sin. But instead, we actually need to embrace it. We need to recognize for the sake of humanity that it is only because of the pleasurable side of sin that we can separate initial action from malignant intent. So let's get logical for a second. Man isn't going to throw himself against the onslaught of damaging biological, psychological, social, and generational consequences such as venereal diseases, disease, cancer, addiction, infertility, social incarceration, depression, AIDS, without some form of incentive. Pleasure for its euphoric blitzkrieg on the physical senses is the most effective conduit between damage, mankind, and his exposure to damage. You ask any financially, socially, socially, biologically devastated, alcoholic, drug addict, AIDS patient, convicted racist, or abortion outpatient, if he or she would willingly subject themselves to the after effects of these actions without first experiencing the primary pleasurable dividends, however debased some of them might be, of the initial action, the unanimous response would be, of course not. But if we think about it, it's only these pleasures that cause these byproducts. Most AIDS patients did not contract AIDS while reading books at the library. The average 40-year-old male is not going to be hauled off to prison on rape charges if he doesn't commit the act. 
Devastated black lungs are not the byproduct of living a smoke-free life in Hawaii. How does a biologically devastated alcoholic become such a statistic by drinking ungodly amounts of iced tea? Metaphorically, sin is shards of glass coated in chocolate, which taste wonderful in the mouth and then lacerate the organs on the way down. The church attacks the world for eating the chocolate because God said not to. The world sucks at the smooth chocolate coating and says you're missing out on life's biggest delicacies. What the church should be saying is, of course it's chocolate. You never would have swallowed the glass shards without it. So how do we need to act now then? All right, first we need to recognize that actions are not the end of evil. The outcomes of those actions are truly the intent of raw. The world is full of people, those made in God's image, that bought into the lie of pleasure without consequence. It works on television programs, it works in movies, but it ain't real life. Real life, when raw enters the picture, is dangerous, damaging, and caustic. It doesn't just affect the individual, it affects families, societies, and generations. This is one of the main battles the church needs to be fighting as Christians. Against raw for the sake of humanity. Why? Because according to these passages and according to these, these, these definitions, it's what God cares about. How do we do this then? Again, it requires more than just scripture. It requires every one of us to use our talents and our influences to expose raw as it masks itself in pleasure, as well as lovingly dealing with the after effects of those that raw has decimated. Next time you see someone you would normally look down on or discard relationally, consider how raw is affecting their lives. That might mean that you're going to need to have a conversation with them and maybe many conversations. But perhaps you're an educator and you can use your platform of influence to address how raw affects the people around you. Maybe you love research and you can discover and blog about raw's impact on your community like I'm doing here. Maybe you're a pastor. Then you can begin to help your congregation see that they need to love those affected by raw, not look down on them as morally, intellectually, and spiritually inferior. By solely focusing on people's actions, you alienate and you isolate But by focusing on outcomes, you express concern, empathy, and love. And I believe we're going to make real progress for the sake of the individual and for the sake of our society. Then the culture not only changes the perceptions of the church, it is also healed from the intended effects of raw. All right, thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope it helps you see just how glorious your worldview is and how responsible you are to the world to share it. The God, the creator of our universe, has given us every tool to see this world turned upside down in positive, powerful, and profound ways. If you want to learn more, you can grab some of my books. You can find them at davidwlitwin.com. And there you can get really a 360-degree view of who I am, what I do, and what I believe. I hope you'll return again for future podcasts. We've got a lot to say. And please reach out to me via email or Facebook or Twitter. And all that's available on my website. Hope you have just a glorious day. And just remember to always live inspired.